Join us as we cover many an insane movie and numerous cult TV phenomenons. Are you ready to get jacked up? Are you with us? Then listen on. Doing fine. Nice to Alpha. be here. First episode, and we got Jonathan Mark. <laughs> What's up, everybody? All righty. Well, we let the guests go first. So, when did you blow your load on the Poma films? What made you just realize, wow, you've got an unusual knack at suspense, action, terror, and thriller? Uh, I'm just <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess when I was a teen, probably like in like 12 years old, maybe in the 90s, I saw Dressed to Kill on TV. And the main impression I got from it, weirdly, was um, there's that big sequence in the art gallery, sort of a chase sequence. And I just was amazed at like, I guess it's not really a chase sequence. It's so slow and methodical. But I was really amazed just that sort of how it sucked me in and how entrancing the actual filmmaking was. So that caused me to start looking up his other films. And I realized that he had done films I was aware of or had seen like the untouchables. And I guess mission impossible was coming out around that time. It was a few years later, but nice. so yeah. 94, okay, 95. All right. so, I might've seen Carrie around the same time as well. So they aired a shitload of his movies on AMC and yeah. TV guy was a huge help growing up. I saw one article on the movies, and I was already familiar with the Palma because he just was always brought up in every. I read a shit ton of film biography books and would track them down at blockbusters and ask parents to get them for me if they were age appropriate. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so wild how he was part of that circle, you know, that included Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas who he still gets residuals from because he was the one who knocked some sense. I don't know what the fuck is going on. You got to add an opening scroll for Star Wars, <laughs> the original one. And <laughs> so Lucas always uh, gives him some money or a check in the mill or something. How <laughs> i receiving no credit, but yeah, I, I think he hung out with uh, William Friedkin. Can't confirm, but yeah, uh, Coppola definitely. And it is kind of wild. People don't really take it for granted because they're just used to seeing slow motion. He was kind of the one who popularized it a little more in the States. It's kind of more of a European kind of thing, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. And mm-hmm. 
did way, way more slow motion. And he was, I guess you could say he was MTV for how Fred Hitchcock at the time when MTV was first becoming a thing. Because, like, he was styling it a lot. And even now when I look at the newest suspense or horror drama uh, or just, again, just atypical kind of spy movie, I will often get not only Hitchcock, but De Palma in the same sentence. So that tells me how he might be irrelevant to some people, but he's very uh, relevant to, in many eyes in, in terms of just everyone just gets that general vibe when they're seeing some voyeurism in a movie, when they're seeing someone spying on someone who they don't know is spying on them, some kind of shit like that, you know? Um, but I guess my introduction to him was definitely, I definitely wanted to see The Untouchables, and I finally saw it, and I played on TV so much. But mm-hmm. it took me a while to realize, it's like, yeah, he made fucking Carrie and Scarface. And right. how so many of his movies were hated at the time, but loved now, you know, 10 years later. Or they were liked at the time, but no, it was uncool to talk about it. <laughs> Like, yeah, no, he was liked, but it was just not easy for everyone to talk about him because in the 80s, I don't know, we just kind of had that process where I think that was the beginning of where critics were very slow to like anything and audiences didn't really know what they want because they were just embracing home video and uh, edgy TV shows. So I guess you could say that was just the turning point. It's like, well, what's going to become a classic now? You know? <laughs> And I think he has a bunch of his gems, and he has, unfortunately, been involved with some lesser movie productions. And I guess you could say right now, he he's had such a cult appeal to where now it's like you still light up whenever you see an interview with him, because you know it's going to be some damn goodness, you know, for <laughs> the film buff in us. And I'll leave it there and let John kind of transition. Uh, you you were more familiar with Blowout and Mission Impossible and Untouchables. Yeah, it was pretty much Mission Mission Impossible that introduced me to him at the time, and eventually later on is when I found out about Untouchables, Carrie, even Blowout later on, which is what I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what was it about his style that just kind of stood out to you? Well, it was strange, because with the first Mission Impossible, I had not seen a movie like that before, which was, you know, the very tight close-ups on the actors' faces at the right. time. Because I was a kid when I first watched the first one. And um, every other movie is very wide range nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Like to end the scene now, and there, <laughs> like, there's no speeches. There's a lot of running around and people feeling like they're being uh, going to get killed. <laughs> it's actually very brutal, PG-13, and there's not even gore shed. <laughs> so it's like, man, but you felt it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. The compromise of being De Palma and doing a big studio blockbuster picture. Um, were you familiar with Carlito's way in Casualties of War by any chance? Or? 
I was familiar with those. I still haven't seen those to this day, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so, Homa just kind of bursts onto the scene, you know, in the mid-70s. And I really like how he kind of forms just a very unique friendship with everyone. Like, he legit talks to various people. And and he's all any production that he's not a part of, he still suggests to many people and will say, you know, hey, you gotta check out Robert De Niro. You gotta check out such right. actor I want to use, but you know, I don't have the time or resources or budget right now. You know, <laughs> um, if you look at a lot of his movies, he pretty much is just fascinated by French cinema. Uh, I don't know his ethnicity. I never did that much research. Do you know anything on him, Eric? Um, actually, no, I don't really know. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I'm quite embarrassed to say that. I don't really know much about his background at all. I mean, I know that his um, parents were Italian-American. So, oh, okay. And, and he was raised partly Catholic anyway, because he had some Catholic guilt in his background. So that's about it. For sure. Um, I'm actually surprised how he has actually ventured into comedy now and again and gotten some good reception, and yet people still just know him as the mystery or the horror or the action guy. So it's just like, <laughs> that's your set for life in that. You just can't break away from it, I guess. <laughs> well, one, one interesting thing about um, his early work and his time at university was as opposed to Spielberg and um, Scorsese, all the other people you mentioned, he actually came from a university theater background. So he was really interested in theater and sort of that um, highly theatrical element, whereas the other people like Spielberg came just from film. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, much like Sidney LeMay, he did have that theater background. Like, he he knew how to get, get the actors and the shots and the lighting to play to the camera because that was how you build any kind of mood and I guarantee you any kind of mystery person is definitely inspired by at least one of his movies definitely body double blowout or definitely parts of even Carlito's way when you watch some of these new groundbreaking gangster shows on stars or HBO right uh I think that's definitely well said because I mean if anything I mean he it's like, you either got that or you got nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It, it makes up for just so much predictability when you got multiple plot twists and you got you know, dreaming, ki- dreamy kind of scenery. Um, I definitely feel like he established that early on in Sisters, and that's definitely uh, that. And one of the other movies, which I can't remember from the 70s, uh, is where he started working with John Lithgow. Oh, Lithgow's in Obsession, right? That's the one I'm thinking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that one comes on Fox Movies once in a while. Um, I can't say I'm 100% on that one. It's just a little too outdated for me, but it's definitely worth seeing just to see where he went from that point on, where he evolved. Right. And, but yeah, I think Carrie was really just the main one that just got him in the door. It said, hey, now you can play ball with all the other blockbuster filmmakers. You can make a movie that would otherwise be an exploitation venture, but you gave it so much life and heart and tragedy. 
Yeah, and no one really expected that it would become a big success. I mean, um, I knew Pauline Kale really championed it, but otherwise, when it first came out, people just sort of saw it as another Grindhouse movie. So, yeah, it's Carrie. It's Carrie where he shared the casting call with Star Wars, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. looking at Christopher Walken, Kurt Russell, Travolta, all that, all those guys. <laughs> right. Reserve the same space to just start casting and um i feel like he's a good person I, I i've never heard any inappropriate remarks from him years before or afterwards so he doesn't come off as a pig or anything he still kind of has that kind of old school kind of feel very but, much yeah but he still kind of has the is like okay i know what some people will react to versus what others won't but you know, just because I got some sexual material in my movies doesn't mean I got a casting call. I know he was very vocal in his documentary on him, where he right. marked how he had had an affair with another woman, but you know, at least he just kind of fessed up to it. It's like, yeah, that just kind of inspired me as a person, even though it's not something I'm proud of. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of him going over the top, being verbally abusive to people, and it's slapping him so that's cool yeah um his early like around 1980 around dressed to kill there were lots of claims that his films were misogynistic but talking to the actual women involved in his films everyone has liked working with him there's never been any bad words about set behavior or anything like that so right and do you think he watched a lot of giallo like stereo or disco type movies at the art house theaters Absolutely. I think Dress to Kill in particular is basically an American giallo film. And those so. were often accused of being misogynistic. Even yes. Like, even Lucy Gofolsi was accused of being misogynistic, even though he never laid a hand on anyone or made him feel uncomfortable. It's just, like you say, it's just the work was just so much greater than the person. You're like, oh, you killed a dog. Oh, you, you shot an old man. You, know? <laughs> uh, you slapped an old lady you know, on the screen. Uh, who are you? And it's like, yeah, they're just exploring a very gruesome, morbid world. That's all they're doing. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think... I, I doubt I, <laughs> Well, I think the Palma did have a quote somewhere, I wish I could find it, where he said that, you know, he'd rather see a beautiful woman being chased than an ugly man. So that was his excuse for some of his films, but... Yeah, I mean... Which is fair enough, it's film. I mean, sort of, that's what it's about. And, and that's true. Can't say that a female filmmaker wouldn't head catch the handsome guy. Or, oh, absolutely, yeah. If it was an LGBTQ film, I mean, yeah. Any, seen any of those movies? Some of them are really good. Some of them, even my gay friends will admit, are garbage. <laughs> Just, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I agree. Yeah. And it was like, but everyone in those is of different complexion or appeal or sizzle. So it's like, yeah. I mean. It's just kind of one of those things. You're going to get beautiful people versus not the most handsome or appealing people. But that's just it. I mean, I think he's pretty good at just getting various people who just kind of resonate in some way. If they're older, you notice they're often the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Had a lot of veteran affairs. And the middle-aged guys are often the lead or still have some kind of... Uh, chemistry with everyone he never really has anything that's just flat out just weird it's like yeah i can't wrap my head around that really but um yeah so i guess i'll just move on um a little bit um so 
Yeah, the 80s come and go, or the 70s come and go, and yeah, Carrie's a big hit. It's, it's even acknowledged by critics at that time, but it just kind of takes a while, like maybe three years, I think, before everyone starts talking about it again. Maybe right. more than that, don't quote me. Um, <laughs> so, um, Chris the Kill, I've kind of tried watching a few different times. I might even watch it again a few more. It's just one of those, I, you got to really be in the mood for it. It's like, you're seeing Michael Caine do all these unusual kind of scheming and everything. And when did you see this, John? Was this like on cable or on Showtime quite a lot? It was really on Showtime when I first got to see it. They, they love playing this stuff. I don't know what it is. They do. Um, well, what surprises me about Dress to Kill, actually, looking up to it, was it was a huge box office hit. It made $40 million on $6 million budget. And it really sort of, it was why he was able to make films, continue to make films in the 80s because of its success. So, and that sort of surprises me because it is a slow and very mannered film and you wouldn't really expect it to have caught on with the mainstream, except for maybe they were titillated by all the sex in the ads. I don't know, but, but no, it, it was a big hit. Yeah. You ever seen a shower scene like this before? No. Alan from Robocop a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely the start of his voyeuristic thing. So I like to kind of think of this as kind of a leading up to his bigger stuff. Yeah, I think that's fair for sure. And yeah, blowout the following year, and which I'm was a surprise at how they've been able to show this on regular antenna channels. UPN would even show it on once in a while, and I was like, wow, really? They were able to modify this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> what would you cut? Wow. They kind of imply it without showing any of the moaning or pets. And I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> uh, the thing about Low uh, um, Blowout is that he it was a big box office bomb, despite having Travolta. And he has always said that that's because he stuck to his guns and had an unhappy ending. So I don't know how much truth there is to that or not. But I think he's speculating, you know. Yeah. Just, typically, when you go against the studio guys... Let's be honest. Whether it's a good movie or not, there's always someone selling out some info or studio heads. It's really just stupid how if they don't like a movie, they will do the whole, well, then I want it to fail. It's like, right. no, take your money back. And so it doesn't really take much for them to just go to the first reporter they see and just gossip and just say, oh, it's going to suck. Don't see it. <laughs> so, I think that's through yeah yeah i mean war does get around though it's amazing how some movies that had downer endings were hits and others that weren't back in the day but it was still kind of just unheard of there had to have a hollywood kind of ending and i mean it's a downer kind of ending but i mean i don't regret any going for any of it it's generally kind of i guess you could say his more agreeable movies where mm. i've seen people who generally don't like those kind of uh Gritty thrillers really like it just because again, just the star power was there. Nancy Allen, the, you know, as the killer, and uh, Travolta, and just how original it was at using the Foley as the star. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's a great absolutely. On a movie, just uh, it kind of predates all the other kind of, you know. I mean, this was after that one George C. Scott, Paul Schrader film, Hardcore. But, I mean, yes, before other movies were trying to be, like, eight millimeters. But, yeah, I think this is a very inspirational right. subgenre movie. Um, 
Oh, that's interesting. I didn't mm-hmm. think to associate it with those films, but it I can totally see that. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, I mean, he did body double around the same time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thought he was going to kind of keep doing that, kind of like some of the other filmmakers. But, yeah, he surprisingly did it. Kind of. Uh, before this um, podcast, I was looking up a little bit about body double and I was reading and I had read this before that originally his goal or so he claimed was that he would make a hardcore pornographic film thriller and he was going to cast a porn actress in the lead and he actually apparently auditioned some before he found Melanie so wow yeah (laughs) he sort of said that it was going to be a big screw you to anyone who said that he had too much sex in his movies that he would just give them as oh, much yeah. sex as could. So, yeah. He made no secret about it. He hates the rating system. Yes. Because not only is he just... Oh, yeah. Old, but he saw... This was where they started becoming hypocrites. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, okay, well... Some sane, insane people are going to take their kid to this, but most aren't. And <laughs> we're embracing home videos, so there's plenty of them who are going to sneak it in. So it's like... um. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we could just kind of tread on to a Scarface. Is it a gangster gym, or is it just a cult fun party movie, <laughs> or is it one of the worst movies of all time? Or is it so bad it's good? What's your take? John, what you think? <laughs> well, that one's strange, because I would have been in one of those people that said it's one of the worst films of all time, because at the time, I was not really into those type of films but since then right. i've i've grown into you know those types and one. <laughs> i've come to appreciate that more than i have over the years and i'd say it's a solid film it's not one of my personal favorites but it's a solid entry in the poem's filmography yeah i was slow on this myself too it just wasn't when I saw it, like other than the last, the finale, I just could not get into it. I just thought it was old, old, old. And same here. I've just later on just caught on to it and just slowly just kind of just really found a lot of appeal to it. I, I, I can see why people quote it. You know, Tony, come on. You know, and <laughs> all the issues with all the actors who worked on it, like Stephen Bauer saying, "Yeah, I can play a Cuban." <laughs> Robert Lowe just saying, "This is basically community theater we were doing every day." Um, uh, Eric, I'll let you weigh in. Uh, I guess for me, it, at least initially, was sort of so over the top and so bad that I think it's pretty great. I do I do like it a lot, <laughs> but but <laughs> I don't quite understand people who take it really seriously, and I know lots of people do. And I wonder in that case if some of my problems with it is I'm not sure if the De Palma go really mixes with the Oliver Stone screenplay. There seems to be like they're writing <laughs> different movies. Yeah. And I, I don't yeah. know. And that's that's fine. It's sort of like I've come to terms with that and I think it works, but yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's plenty if you think about anyone else who could have played the lead, let alone would have been attached to write a movie like this, it would have probably gone overboard. You wouldn't want someone like John Malias or anyone else to right. write <laughs> it would be just too over the top. Um it even makes you wonder, should Oliver Stone have just done it versus De Palma? Um, 
and of course you see just contrarian stuff all the time i i have a book that just talks about just some talks about just its relevance in pop culture other shows that just make a habit of spoofing it um right or paying a tribute and there's even plenty of other movies that do Miami stuff, and I pretty much just say, okay, is this movie logic or Scarface logic? Because it's kind of its own genre. <laughs> it's true. So much references it, yeah, that we sort of see Miami always portrayed that way. I mean, even Miami Vice itself seems to take a lot from Scarface. So. Uh, absolutely. I mean, That's true. Many of the guys who would be the villains of the week were just, yeah, the gunmen in this. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it can be enjoyed now in kind of a heat or training day kind of way, but I can also see why some still want to dismiss it. I have a lot of fun with it now, but I can totally just understand if just someone just thought it was excessive or just an ugly mess. It, it's kind of greater than the sum of its parts. Like, it really, you do see a side of Pacino you've never really seen before, and right. he's not Cuban. But he's doing his damn best to be Cuban, and yet it kind of wrecks his career in a way. Just makes him be just want to do a send up of that. <laughs> you would have yeah, thought he... it would have been a bigger story when it was the producer of Dog Day Afternoon who worked on it, and Sidney Lemay decided, nope, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> yeah, he was he was going to direct it at some point, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Lemay, yeah. Wow. <laughs> would have been a totally different movie. Um, Absolutely, would have been. I could see it being more like Dog Day Afternoon. Desperate! I'm desperate! Um, so, um, it's a hell of a movie. Uh, I can see some people kind of understanding why it's overrated, because it really has been done to death. I'm actually surprised at how many legit gangsters reference it in some way. <laughs> just seen reports about people saying, I'm going to Montana, I'll fuck you up. And it's like, wow. <laughs> Yeah, you'd think they'd want to distance themselves from it, but I don't know. Yeah, or call it inaccurate or something, but yeah, they just some people embrace it. <laughs> something about it, they just think it's cool. Um, I don't think it really glamorizes violence, and yet at the same time, I mean, that's kind of the deal with gangster stuff. You see it from their angle versus the other angle, and it's like, okay, well, a movie is not an invite to do violence, but at the same time, I mean... Gangsters are always going to exist, just like, you know, any kind of criminal. So it's not like we're encouraging people to be, you know, <laughs> serial killers or anything. It's just kind of more it's like, okay, that's their lifestyle. And it only comes out of control when they're actually legit warning people that they're going to cap them. So, <laughs> yeah, I can't. I mean, as, um, if someone says that it glamorizes the lifestyle, that makes me think that it shows a lifestyle that people would want to be a part of. And I can't imagine watching Scarface and thinking, oh, I really wish, you know, I was there while people are getting shot up and doing mountains of cocaine. Like it, It's it kind of like the movies encouraging violence kind of act as like, well, if you're going to encourage someone to be like Defense and Falling Down or Travis and Taxi Driver, it's like right. they're all lost to begin with. So, you know, fair telling the movie, oh, it's a, it's a PSA. <laughs> it's a, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the army. <laughs> and you could easily say there was a lot of ugly, disgusting movies, war movies that did that too, that did the whole, you know, you must join. <laughs> I don't think anyone watching Starship Troopers is actually going to enlist. <laughs> right. 
and then I wouldn't put it past me. Of course, there's some stupid people out there. There's well, yeah, yeah. Says, sure, I nuke some bugs. Ah, Johnny Rico seems cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So, I think it's, a, it, it's also kind of wild how what movies are clearly influenced by it, and yet the filmmakers claim after the fact, yeah, no, that's not what I was going for. Like, Mario Van Peebles said he wasn't going for Scarface vibes. Well, kind of acknowledging it on New Jack City. I'm like, I don't see uh-huh. how. It's literally got the same kind of shots and angles and everything. You had to have been somewhat influenced by it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Anti-drug movie. I mean, well, Scarface kind of is an anti-drug movie, too, while also showing what it, the appeal of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely shows both sides. But, yeah, I, don't I mean, their, their lives are destroyed by the cocaine, basically. Yeah, so. I don't. Oliver Stone knows a lot about drugs, having done them. I don't think he wants to be a cello. He just wants to show the insanity of it. And somewhere right. lost in the transition of De Palma being influenced by his pal Coppola. And, you know. Uh, uh, one, thing about, one thing about Scarface is um, when it was a hit, and I think De Palma talks about this in the documentary, um, Brockheimer came up to him and offered him basically anything he wanted to make as long as he agreed to make Flashdance, which he apparently <laughs> agreed to, but he just kept on putting it off and off and off till they finally gave it to um, Lynn, I think. Um, Adrian Lynn. But anyway, because he really <laughs> didn't want to make Flashdance. <laughs> but, but I sort of wish I'd seen a De Palma Flashdance. I don't know. It would be interesting. That would be fascinating, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he might have even gone with the original gritty Joe Esterhaus storyline. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. He probably would have, actually, yeah. <laughs> I could actually see Joe Esterhaus doing this movie, too. Rewriting Oliver Stone's storyline, adding more sleaze. Oh, yeah. It's oh, yeah. like a proto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I want to see Paul Verhoeven do this. Because <laughs> I'm going to follow producing. Oh, don't get me started. All right, so, I mean... Uh, good or bad or so bad it's good. It's just kind of a one-of-a-kind movie that you couldn't even make now, so that's kind of how I look at it. <laughs> even though it does kind of start the whole trend of, you know, kind of like collaterally seeing Tom Cruise play a bad guy. I've never seen that before, you know? So, it may not rank up there with all the 40s and other 70s and 80s gangster movies, but 80s kind of gangster movie. <laughs> it's its own kind of genre. Um, oh, and your discretion is still advised. It's not going to be for everyone. I'm sure if I showed it to certain people, like my siblings, they'd be like, what the hell are you making me watch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be showing it to my mom anytime soon. So. No. Same here. I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. We can watch something like Die Hard or Lethal Weapon for Christmas, but Scarface, no. 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 Nope. Alrighty, so uh, next up, um, let's get into The Untouchables. Talk about okay. how that kind of became kind of the comic book-esque look at the TV show version and how this was kind of just fiction versus reality. Who wants to go first? <laughs> I was going to say, do you want to start? I, I... Whoever the guest is, I like <laughs> What was your intro to it, Eric? Uh, I, like I said, I think I came to it a little bit um, after the fact. I already sort of knew who Dupama was. And I had always 
I mean, it came out when I was seven, I guess, six or seven, but I was always sort of aware of it. Maybe I saw ads. In fact, for a long time, I didn't realize that it was actually based on a TV show because I didn't know the TV show, but I knew the film. Um, I, I think it's a pretty amazing film. I mean, it's for a long time um, when I'd read about De Palma, especially De Palma in the 80s, people would, lots of critics sort of thought it was his only worthwhile film. So I sort of thought maybe it was overrated almost because they were using it to elevate and show what De Palma could do and sort of bringing down all of his other films as being crap and trash compared to it. Yeah. But, um, but I've, come a I've come around. Sorry, go on. Yeah, Roger Ebert was very kind to his other movies, and yet with this one, he, he was totally disappointed by it. <laughs> oh, really? Well, I know Ebert and Pauline Kael were the two big um, critics who always, always liked De Palma, and then quite often they seemed to not like De Palma when the other critics did like him. So, Yeah, I mean, yeah. what gets lost in the whole transaction is like kind of the bastardization of Rotten Tomatoes, because like... You know, that's why I like uh, Metacritic, because it has actually archived all this shit, you know, from ages ago. So it's going with the legit, you know, rating. Right. Oh, Not well, fans. Yeah. You know, Scarface and even movies like Hellraiser, you know, have an abysmal score. Right. <laughs> because they did back in the day. It's like, now you talk about it, it's like, oh, yeah, people liked it. It's like, not at the time. <laughs> <laughs> no. Cable TV. That was the second life. Yeah. No. What was your intro to it, John? Well, like I said, after I saw the first Mission Impossible, right? I immediately delved right into Untouchables since my brother owned it at the time on DVD. And like you said before, Eric, I had never actually knew it was a TV show before then. Mm. That was a big surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it just can't even compare. I look at it and I'm like, yeah, Robert Stack is pretty cool, but there's so many other 40s and 50s and 60s shows I'd rather watch. And this movie was just somehow larger than life. It was cool. It made me want to be a Chicago, you know, dark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it appealed to me much like Mulholland Falls and L.A. Confidential. I'll put it that way. It just had that kind of... It, it was going to appeal to old school you know, movie buffs and fans, you know, so you could show it to literally everybody, your granddad, your father, you know, it's also a thinking man's kind of movie, so that's why it appealed to the crowd it did at the time, and I think it made good business, but yeah, I mean, you're working with freaking David Mamet, Mamet! Right, yeah, I, I was just going to say that, yeah. And I, I think everyone kind of forgets that he does that, even though they quote Sean Connery's character quite a lot. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just looking it up, and actually, it grossed over a hundred million in its original release worldwide. Oh. So, it's definitely what I I wanted to see it for the longest time, just because of the cast alone. I was like, I'm trying to see some of Kevin Costner's other works. It was on TV quite a lot. I dug Sean Connery as an actor, and so it's like, and I can't imagine the movie without him. But yeah, I mean, it was probably the first thing besides Ocean's Eleven that I saw. Andy Garcia in, I think. So, yeah. Charles Martin Smith, who's now a big director, you know. Back then, he was a Canadian character actor. <laughs> right. And you got De Niro in there as well. De Niro, and uh, some people just think that the whole them facing each other at the end is like, it rings so false. I was like, well, 
for a movie, you kind of had to do that. You just had to <laughs> fictionalize that a bit and have them say what's on their mind, because otherwise you just have no connection. Yeah, it's yeah. not realistic, but uh, yeah, you can't do the movie without, I think the movie wouldn't work without that scene, actually, so. And it really is suspenseful as hell, and then just unexpectedly gets violent and starts breaking down walls and everything, and it's just so unreal how it happens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, more or less, I mean, this is one hell of a movie, and I, I, I don't think you could even make it as good today. I mean, I've seen some movies kind of be tributes to these kind of films, but for the most part, they're kind of more one note, kind of like, I mean that in a good way, like the story is simple. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Like, Motherless Brooklyn isn't as intense as that or LA Confidential, but it has a lot of the same kind of perks where. Yeah, I, I definitely think, I haven't seen um, Brooklyn yet, but I definitely think um, that LA Confidential owes quite a bit actually to the Untouchables, so, style-wise. Curtis Hansen was kind of the same way, where he was mm -hmm. making these Hitchcockian kind of clones, and yet still kind of liked in his own right by some, and you know, then you make Hand That Rocks the Cradle and River Wild, and then that's, you know, Confidential is the best movie to date, and I think... Right. You say the Green. same thing about Untouchables. Untouchables is just such a big, fun, good versus evil, you know. And none of it seems like now anti heroes has to be more of a dark knight thing. It's like, well, Untouchables was just kind of showing how real life heroes are. Cops are going to break the rules and fib a bit before we found a lot of them to be kind of like pigs and all. And right. You know, these guys, you know, they're not doing fucked up shit, like, obviously, like, oh, shit, you didn't get that on camera, did you? <laughs> now they're just like, I'm going to rough you up before I toss you in the cell. <laughs> well, and it helps that, you know, they're bringing down a bunch of a mob, so it's not people, right. just random people on the street or something, so. And, I mean, they, they don't shy away. They do imply that there's some crooked cops that got, you know, one of yes. them. Yes. Yes. No less, and you don't have to see it. It's like, and you wouldn't figure it out anyway because, again, you know, the union, even back then, so <laughs> you yeah. never find out the guy. And most of the time, the cops didn't do the killing. They just did the whole, you know, here's where so-and-so is on this floor. Don't kill right. my family. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Face. <laughs> um, so, yeah, more or less, uh, let us round it about uh, the 90s heat up and well, like, well you did, know, that, did, did you want to talk about Casualties of War, yeah, which was 89? Yeah, I, 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 um, I, this plays on AMC still a lot to this day. Uh, I remember being hyped up about the director's cut and then realizing, oh, it's only really two extended scenes. That's all it is. Right. But yeah, never seen Sean Penn play a bad guy. Never seen Michael J. Fox, for that matter, play a trooper. But yeah, I got played quite a lot on A&E, AMC type channels. Uh, what was your take on it? Uh, I, I like the film. Obviously, I think it's just because of the how you know how heavy it is because of the subject matter alone. It's not really a film I've gone back to, and I can see myself going back to too many times. And like, it's funny that, um, as you point out, AMC shows it so often because usually the films they show are sort of the kinds of films you can imagine watching on a Saturday afternoon or whatever, just because it's on. And I wouldn't really consider Casualties of War that kind of yeah. movie. 
just because you have to, you know, it's about, you know, it's about the rape and murder and all that and everything. So it's, there's no real, um, even the sort of set pieces that De Palma always has in his movies, the ones in Casualties of War don't really have the same element of fun because of that. So, but I, I think it's an accomplished film. I, um, I know that a lot of people really didn't like it when it came out and I think it bombed. And I know once again, Pauline Kale was one of the few people, I think Roger Ebert as well, who really sort of championed it, but. Um, I think they both were just like, it's a basic story, but it's no different than any kind of, you know, B war film from. Okay. And yeah, I mean, more or less, the story is basic. It's just kind of the, the cast, the style, the subject matter, that's what makes it appeal. But at the same time, I don't think anyone else could have handled it well without going overboard or too violent or too gruesome or just too damn long. Especially if really Scott or Scorsese did it. It would be way too fucking long. You'd be like, you hate it. <laughs> yeah, it would probably be endless if Scorsese did it. That's right. It's under two hours. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't recall it being three hours. That is for sure. And yeah. On a hell of a cast, even the supporting wise, you got Greg Henry as the right investigator who's in a lot of De Palma's work. You got Bing Rames as one of the generals on the base, and uh, I mean Don Harvey later goes on to be in other stuff like Taken Three, Die Hard Two. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of the villain of the week kind of guy on all those crime shows and movies, and uh, John Leguizamo. This kind of starts him up being. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say. Uh, De Palma definitely casts a lot of people on Broadway or who are comedic, especially with Lithgow and Leguizamo. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. John, John C. Riley too. And yeah, a few other people who came from theater. Basically. Yeah. And I saw this the year he was kind of becoming bigger post Chicago. So that was awesome right. for me that industry. Like, yeah, he hasn't been working a while. Uh, John, have you seen that? I have not seen this. Okay. Uh, I think it's a good movie. It's just, I think you could say the problem is it's not best of all time because, again, this is a very hard to talk about subject matter. And yeah. I'd even argue that some movies like Platoon have done it slightly better. That's just me. Like, I just, like, yeah, it's it, it just to make it be one of the many parts of it as opposed to the single thing about it. And, uh, but like, like Eric said, only De Palma could have understand this because this is a. I mean, maybe Sidney LeMay could have done something like that, like right. The Hill. But, but yeah, it's like it's a kind of noir. The character happens to be about two different people, and he just had the casting right at the time. He casted him with anyone else, like Tom Cruise back then. Maybe would have worked. Tom Cruise now, Tom Cruise would have won too much attention and be too one-sided. And, um, I mean, this isn't a movie that is going to be one-sided anyway. It's, just, it's pretty straightforward. It's like, right. Uh, the, the people you're rooting against happen to be your brothers in arms. And they, he, there's plenty of ironies throughout the film. Sean Penn saves Michael J. Fox from a manhole. Or just getting ambushed by Viet Cong. But at the same time, he's the guy who shoots everyone on sight. And so they don't show him killing kids, but I think he does cap at least one woman in the film. So it's like. Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. It's largely. 
Yeah. Sean Penn was the new A-lister at the time. Fast Times at Richmore High, who had a much like Charlie Sheen, a bad boy attitude. So it made sense casting wise. And you know, Michael J. Fox was just you know adorable. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. And I'm like, easy. They can do the work. Now they can dive into those characters, and I'm you know. I always just kind of wanted it to check it out because you know I was such a fan growing up of Family Ties and Back to the Future. So I was like, so was I, yeah. It's like I want to see other movies that Michael's done in this thing. <laughs> and this one you can't let a kid see, so it's gonna be hard to watch this one. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think we pretty much said all this needs to be said. I mean, it is. What was the? I can never remember the name of it, but he tried revisiting it later in a, during the Iraq War during '07. Yeah, that's a redacted. I, I could not get into that. I've tried no, I, I think it's a pretty terrible movie. Actually, I I've feel quite guilty saying that. Too, and I'm like, really? You hate found footage and all this other shit, and you're. <laughs> I think the other thing about De Palma is everyone knows how divisive some of his material can be so right. they're pretty cool with people not liking some of his work but as john and i have talked about before why do the razzies have such a hard on for hating his work still to this day <laughs> i don't know like, i think some of that, that is already... just that the razzies like to pick on high profile people right like they're yeah. not so people know who De Palma is he had some really really big mainstream successes so it's sort of a name like I, I and I guess too because he does do such um his filmmaking is so um well it's so obvious it's such it's so indebted to being really about cinema itself like his use of split screens you talked about all the slow motion oh, all that yeah. stuff and I love that mm -hmm. but I can see how some people could just sort of roll their eyes on it and at it and say that he's being pretentious <laughs> yeah exactly yeah I mean. Pretty much every mystery or suspense thing, everyone instantly goes Hitchcock, and I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure even other movies like Nick of Time and yes, <laughs> and John Woo's American stuff probably has at least one De Palma shot, um, especially the dollies. And I didn't even talk about the Fury. I think that's an interesting movie. Everyone should check out for the cast, but liked it or hated, depending on whether you buy infamous producer Andrew Stevens in the lead role. That's the possessed kid. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the I like the Fury, but it's a crazy movie. It seems to be like three different kinds of movies all in one. It's sort of an action movie, and then it sort of has a Carrie type storyline, and then <laughs> yeah. it just sort of jumps around. Oh yeah, and, Kirk Douglas and it has exploding heads. It does have exploding heads. It's kind of <laughs> I saw it on Fox TV, and they gave it a TVPG rating, and they really had to cut away the standard type explosions but all the gunshots were clearly uncut they were going oh james bond that's how it was back then we can't edit it yeah you're right you can't edit it otherwise uh you would want to know oh what's regardless hallucinating about shooting a bunch of people <laughs> there's nothing there yeah yeah i i think it's worth watching just to see his, as a warm-up but yeah i didn't he do betsy's wedding or something or am i think no you're thinking of someone else. <laughs> she and a bunch of other people were in it. Yeah, my bad. Um, he, oh, he did the. Are you thinking of the wedding party, which was an early weird comedy he did, sort of a slapstick uh, one yeah, with, with De Niro? Because that, that's like one of 
Yeah. Ballet. Um, I haven't seen it. Have you? I have. It's um, it didn't make a big impression, but I think it's worth seeing. It's really, really heavily improvised, or at least it seems improvised. And it's fun to see the actors just sort of play off each other. And De Palma try out. De Palma tries out his little camera techniques and stuff. So it's worth seeing. I don't think it's great or anything, but. Hmm. Completest, you would buy it in a box set. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but after after um, Casualties of War, De Palma had his biggest bomb with Bonfire of the Vanities. Have you ever seen that? John Cena does. Don't hold back. Sounds like he's a big fan. I, that's one I actually couldn't finish, honestly. <laughs> that's how you know I didn't like it. Yeah, it was uh, one of those, I didn't hate it, but I did not like it either. It was just like, man, what a hell of a cast. You got Melanie Griffin, Morgan Freeman as the judge, and Bruce Willis, and Tom Hanks. Tom yeah. Hanks, yeah. And, I don't know, I... I feel like there might be some comedy in there. It's just, <laughs> it's just, you would think it would be because everyone forgets Bruce Willis had a comedic background before he became Mr. Overnight, you know, do a hundred different franchises guy, but. Right. Yeah. I have legit, I, I don't find it funny. And I don't know if it was on cable TV versus the movie channels, but I, I and it was just, it left such a non-existent, impression on me i just had no desire to revisit it unlike some of his other works where which i've seen multiple times so good or bad um what was your take on it <laughs> uh yeah i think it hasn't really left an impression on me either i guess more at some point i read there's that um quite well regarded book about the making of it which yeah, is it like it, it yeah and it, it was like it was a nightmare to make it. and i think one of the big problems that everyone says about it is the novel that it's based on, which I've never read, is really, really black humor, and the characters are all very, very unsympathetic. But then the stu so. the studio wanted them to make everyone much more likable from the start. So I didn't get it. That, no, like I mean, they're not more likable. It's just more boring. But <laughs> yeah, it was a huge, huge, huge flop. I guess. Everyone movies can be a crapshoot like Apocalypse Now. It's like, no one had fun making it, but it was a damn good movie. But right. it's like, and this one, it's like, yeah, if everyone's just not getting along, you're just not going to get anything good. And you got to make it because people don't realize, oh, we'll just don't make the movie. It's like, no, you don't get it. Contracts have been signed. There's no such thing as, you, I don't want to finish it anymore. You don't just stop. Exactly. Yeah. The actor who decides I'm walking off midway through, oh, they get blacklisted instantly and only get, you know, movie amateur video stuff <laughs> well I think I think when it bombed so much that's sort of what happened to De Palma even though he had had all those big successes he couldn't really finance a big movie for a couple of years anyway so yeah yeah uh, and it's like the studios were just giving up on him they're like okay we're gonna give you notes but we're tired of babysitting you and you know yeah like you or not because we're seeing mixed reactions um so yeah, studio guys not throwing him a bone, not being supportive, and then you know De Palma just kind of being flustered and just saying, "I'm going to do what I want." And you know, big name stars who are like, "Yeah, sure, I like your movies. I'll, I'll work with you." Um, you didn't really hear too much about actors who were being difficult because that's the other thing too. People don't 
think that, oh, if an actor doesn't like it, they can walk off, no problem. It's like, no, they can't. <laughs> once you're locked into that contract, once the investors have invested all the money because you're in the movie, you, you got to commit, regardless of whether you like the script or not. Right. And people get too picky about scripts anyway. It's just like, you got to just like the general idea, regardless of what, whether you know the ending works or not, or you can play the character. It's going to change somewhere along the way anyway, so you might as well like it. Every yeah, every major film will change its script Play, quite a bit. And, so, and you got to come to set every day with a good attitude. We we heard about countless other people who were in lawsuits because they just backed out of so many movies against their agent or their own wishes, like Kim Basinger and right, Meg Ryan. I'm sure there's plenty of other other actors. Mickey Rourke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah it, it derails their careers basically. So. Yeah, like so, they're doing made-for-TV direct-to-video shit for the rest of their life. Okay, right. got it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I don't think I'll ever rewatch this movie. It's, no, it's, no. Just, it's a non-movie, and I don't want to blame De Palma for it, but at the same time, it's just one of those like he should have just left from the get-go. Yeah, I think. It- I think he did say that he was tied into, like you mentioned contracts, but I think he was tied into a really particularly strong one because he did sort of want to leave at some early point. But and... Right. It was just complicated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, lead us up to Carlito's Way. Pretty taut script by David Cope. Yeah. Again, working with Pacino, playing a different kind of gangster. Sean Penn as his lazy lawyer. Uh, and Leguizamo, once again, as the guy who decides to get vengeance. This is interesting also just because of what a big cast all the non, uh, non, you know, main uh, actors are. I mean, you got, I think, Big Pussy from The Sopranos is one of the patrons. Big yes. guy who Pacino owes money. Or who owes money to Pacino. Sorry, I kind of... I got a lot going on my plate, so I'm going to miss a speak here for a month while. But, um, yeah. Uh, and really, I think the only weak point in this is Penelope Ann Miller's just given nothing to do. Cut her scenes out, the movie flows way better. It just... I don't know if the actress herself is kind of out there as a person, or if just the role was just shitty. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know her acting at all, though, um, when I looked her up at one point when I was watching the movie and wondering who the hell she was, she actually won a Tony for on Broadway. So I guess she's That's a well-regarded good. actress. I mean, but, got- yeah, the character's nothing, really. But yeah, it's like, for the longest time, I just thought the endless shots of the strippers were just right. stupid plays that you just take out of the movie. And again, this movie makes a mistake. Again, it's an over 30-year-old movie, guys. You should know what it is by now. But it's like... Yeah, it uh, it begins with the char- showing the character's death in the opening credits, and right. I think that's an absolute mistake in an otherwise pretty solid movie. Yeah, I I think I agree with you. I think people are always arguing about whether they should have done it that way or not. And again, I think that was an example of De Palma sticking to his guns. He really wanted that, and everyone wondered why he was doing it, sort of as a flashback. But um, no, I agree with you. I think it was a mistake to do it that way, as, even if it makes it more, I don't know, arty or whatever, but artistically. Yeah, made it work, and like you say, others that just totally flopped, like, look for Arabia, 1962. Right. The character dies in the very opening of it, but you don't realize right away that that's 
what we're about to cover, and it kind of somehow, it's just to get your attention, and you instantly forget, and you're swept away into the desert, so... You do forget, in that case. Yeah, absolutely. And other movies have done it, but you just don't know it right away. Like, I mean, come on, Sunset Boulevard is the biggest example. Right. <laughs> the narrator is the dead guy in the pool. The dead body, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the private eye who you're about to witness throughout the rest of the movie, and you don't realize until, oh, shit, I just didn't see what I think is going to happen, going to happen. And that's the most imitated form of noir in the history of cinema, and let alone The Simpsons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Um, I do think the train subway fight is pretty well done. I do think it's great. Yeah. Rocks the whole movie. Um, plan, trying to make the character likable because again, he's just an ex drug dealer who just wants an actual life and. Unlike any of his other ex-con roles, I do actually get behind it because the movie's very simple and has good dialogue um, and characterization. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely a plus for David Cope, who later works with Palma on the earlier draft of Mission Impossible. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah, but he had done the first two Jurassic Parks, and he went to Spider-Man, right. Panic Room. I think even bad influence for Curtis Hansen. So there you go. He used to work with all these noir type guys. And he even directed and wrote the Rebecca's. So there you go. Um, okay. So I think De Palma did immerse himself with some good guys who just were always able to just kind of put in a bone for him. And he just would often backfire. Oh, and I forgot. He does write, collaborate with him again, I think, on Snake Eyes. At least one of the drafts of that. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I think it's definitely keeps him relevant throughout the 90s. I don't know if it made business or not, but it definitely made home video rentals. Um, yeah, it definitely sort of seeped into the culture. Not the same way that Scarface did, obviously, but uh, no. Got, it, well, it got a prequel. <laughs> yeah, I was just seeing that. Uh, Direct-to-video prequel. Uh, I uh, don't suppose either of you have seen that. But. I've seen no. It, and I'm probably the only person on the planet who likes it. Oh, you like it? It's not going to change the world of thing, but I don't know. I, I just kind of dug how they cast Louise Guzman from this as a different character. And, <laughs> and it was its own kind of special style. And it was back when Universal actually was doing sequels to its various kids' movies and blockbusters like Mummy and Scorpion King. And I, I just right. dug how they often include this in all their other gangster movie packs like American Gangster and Scarface. <laughs> it's a. It, I actually saw it for the first time on TNT, and they show a lot of atypical kind of B movies still throughout the 2000s on rare occasions. Right. <laughs> Hours. Uh, and I didn't mind it. It just. In fact, it's probably an underrated director video sequel because it is legit trying to be a worthwhile story. Everyone forgets it was based on a book. <laughs> yeah. And. It just so happened it wasn't going to go that way, regardless. It's never going to go to TV or direct a video, and Universal did this a lot. I mean, Charles Grodin has passed away recently as we're recording this, so it's like, I mean, they did a bunch of Midnight Run TV movie follow-ups. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, it's, incredible it's easy to forget. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just like, yeah, I mean, I don't mind people doing sequels to movies that are inferior or not, as long as it just doesn't feel half-assed or unrelated. And it didn't feel like a movie that they just said was related to Carlito's way. And then they just put that on there, even though it was intended as something else, you know? <laughs> just, right, which is really like, common, yeah. So it was meant to be, you know, a 
prequel movie with some straightforward action, which is what the original did, uh, Rise and Fall of the Christmas. I do feel like Carlito's way has been beasted in many ways by other movies, like especially American Gangsters. There's a lot of, and not the true life story, but I mean, there's a bunch of other uh, movies that kind of take that same kind of formula, like Sugar Hill, and definitely New Jack City, but I mean, even Empire with John Leguizamo follows that similar formula. Yeah, yeah. And trying to get out, having his friend get betrayed, and falling victim to the greed of some shady, you know, stockholders. So, um, in fact, I since that's also a universal movie, I often see that in a two-pack often. <laughs> that and Empire, you know, packaged together. <laughs> huh? I've actually never seen Empire, so. It's fun. Yeah. I could mean you to check it out. I'm an easygoing guy as opposed to doing the whole <laughs> everything be, you know, groundbreaking as the Sopranos. It's like, well, plenty no. of books by those guys that aren't very good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So do you want to move on to Mission Impossible? But that, yeah. Who would have guessed that this was also a nightmare to make and also launched one of the biggest Tom Cruise franchises? I think uh, it's actually sort of become slightly underrated because people have praised um, the sequel so much. Absolutely. I, yeah. Absolutely. I have people who have told about this and they're kind of old school. They'll watch something like Man on Fire, Taken, or the Equalizer movies. And they're some of my dad's friends who were movie buffs and they, they have refused to watch any of these just because they just thought the ending to this was just so stupid. I'm like, real? Really? <laughs> Did they ever watch the did they ever watch the TV show? I mean Yeah, yeah, they were big fans of that and even movies like Ronin that definitely were influenced by it and the Born Identity stuff, but they hate the first movie and they never saw the other stuff. And to be fair, I mean my sister still hates the second one and my brother thought that was the best just because of the stunts. None of them really cared for this one just because they're just like, Yeah, there's not really much going on, it's confusing. <laughs> I mean, fair enough, I guess, but yeah. yeah. I know, I, I like it a lot. But now I really don't care for because it just is such a true lie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith clone. <laughs> like, just so, flat out stealing frames from it. It's just like, come on. It's not a homage if you're just literally, that's an entire 20 <laughs> segment. That's true. And you're like, damn you, Abrams. It's so well shot, and yet I feel nothing from it now because it's just reminding me of better movies. Um, yeah, I mean, for John and I, Ghost Protocol is really the only overrated one, in our opinion. And I know many people vouch for that one, saying it's the best one. It's too goofy for me. Well, I see I, that one and Fallout, I think, are the two most overrated. But Yeah, I mean, Fallout... Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, Fallout does become just, okay, Tom Cruise ego trip by Act 2. And it's like, yeah, but there's just no way you can disarm a device like that. <laughs> <laughs> much and i get that everyone wants to do it but really it does stress believability and every show does it even the ones that are respectable versus the mindless ones and it's like i wish disarming a bomb was you know second nature but come on (laughs) um yeah i mean it's basically i think you could say rogue nation is the best one in these but this one is not bad by any means it didn't help that I had constantly spoiled, oh, the Peter Graves character is the bad guy in this. I've I, always had I, 
I think I watched it, yeah, without knowing anything about all the twists and turns at the end. So they all surprised me. Um, I'm with the Palmer films, actually. That's one thing I'll say is I'm usually willing to go along with his sort of more outrageous plot twists that he likes to have at the end of his movies and stuff. And I know some people just don't take to that at all. They refuse to accept it. But I think his movies are done in such a um, stylized way that they just... I really do, too, and I mean, he understood suspense, so it's really not fair for us to say, oh, no, he didn't get a chance to do this. And it's like, no, I mean, you gotta let every guy try it out. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was never really going to be a big hit with mainstream audiences. It's like, they would have probably wanted someone like uh, Harrison Ford, you know, Warner Brothers, Arnold Copeland production, <laughs> Okay, so you want presumed innocent or the fugitive, you know, imitated again. It's like Tom Cruise had already done sort of stuff like this. The firm, I guess, is kind of an underrated entry into that. Right, right. I mean, more or less, I mean, yeah, if you did it now, it just would be too much. I think, if anything, they could have brought David Mamet back because seeing what good spy work he did on shows like The Unit, let alone the Val Kilmer film Spartan, you know, which are very similar to this. Yeah, actually, I think Mamet would be a good fit. I didn't think about that at all, but yeah. Even Andrew Davis. I mean, we're talking fugitives. They might as well have brought him on to do at least one draft, because John and I really like the movie he did, The Package. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like The Package, so, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Run and talk. <laughs> but that's how you gotta do it. Some actor you love has got to die at the beginning while they're giving key information to the other guy. <laughs> but you're right. Um, Mission Impossible really did set Tom Cruise up on the trajectory of the rest of his career. So, I mean, he made oh. he made Jerry Maguire the same year. I always forget that. So there was a sort you're of right. That's true. It was already at like a 25th anniversary, like Blu-ray out of it. And I think it's 4K. And it's like, yeah, I mean, They've done separate releases of just this one. And I mean, it does say a lot for a studio that couldn't agree on an ending, couldn't agree on a tone, and had so many other people. I mean, Robert Town redoes the dialogue, the master rewriter, you know, of everything from The Godfather to Armageddon. And here he is, and he even admitted when they did the second one, he's like, yeah, we pretty much just uh, ripped off, you know, the ones. Uh, Cary Grant, uh, Hitchcock movie, and just took. Oh, um, North by Northwest. Uh, that and there was like another one, like the, uh, you know, the one where Cary Grant's a thief. Oh, oh, oh such a thing. I think it's notorious, and there's like one other. It one. is notorious, yeah. I think. Notorious, yeah. Yeah, it's like that's all they had to work with. It's like right. I would probably go that way too if I just realized. Okay. So you don't know what you want. And I'm getting tired of rewriting your fucking movie, so I might as well just write the movie I generally like to see. <laughs> um, I mean, even the theme, which was remixed by, you know, The Edge, you know, from U2. You know, right. <laughs> Miami, so, I mean, it was a big deal. And I've seen people imitated it multiple times, just the Tom Cruise grappling in the hacking room. Yeah, that's really yeah. famous, that scene. Yeah, It's both, I think, 
it's not a pure Hitchcock movie, let alone a De Palma movie, but it is definitely an example of a De Palma compromise that actually turned out pretty well. There's still people who I know hate it to this day, and they either just really hate Tom Cruise or they just have never liked any deviation from the TV show formula. And it's like, I, I right. like both. Mission yeah. Impossible has to compromise. It has to appeal to the Expendables Fast and Furious crowd, and it also has to appeal to those of us who prefer James Bond, Jason Bourne kind of stuff. <laughs> it is sort of a mix between the two, yeah. It's been the franchise in need, in a huge use of an identity crisis. And yet nowadays, I guess you could argue that the, re- the fact that they're different kind of makes them better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like James Bond. So, I mean, it is what it is. And I think we'll be the crowd that agrees that De Palma made one of the better entries that was easier to like. Versus any of the other James Bond movies, which we've looked at and we've been like, why the fuck does anyone like that? <laughs> I definitely agreed, yeah. Yeah, so let's move on to Snake Eyes. <laughs> Snake Eyes. Uh, his attempt at like a Manchurian candidate, diehard in a boxing stadium kind of movie. So, first two times couldn't get into this at all. Third time I finally managed. I think so-and-so, I won't give it away, is really good as the villain. But Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. There's not many suspects to change, and those who read up on it realize that Palma had to change the ending due to studio interference. So. Yeah, that's crazy about the ending. I only realized that um, the last time I saw it, I guess. I, I didn't know about all the reshoots and everything when I first saw it. It's really not as grotesquely violent. As some are vicious as some of his other movies, but you can see why it got an R, just because there's a lot of blood on Carla Jean's shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess you could say this is where he just started becoming irrelevant in the 2000s. It just was not kind to him. It's like, damn it, he's not even good. This guy is like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It, it's, I'm looking it up, and it says that it did make money. It made over 100 million, but it also cost a lot of money to make. But um, it sort of started any Some momentum. Over it. <laughs> well, any momentum that he had from Mission Impossible just got drained by Snake Eyes, and it was sort of downhill from there. Hit, I think. Yes, the hit, yes. hit, the miss, and studios just hating his delays, and I guess they just didn't want to put up with it anymore. And it's like, because that's just it. So I guess you could say he's both a craftsman and. You don't know what was said in those meetings. Were the executives really that insecure and impossible to work with? Or was he just so old school and his method was just not to anyone's liking? You know, it's just, did you never hear about the actors complaining about his process? No, no never, not, never, never, yeah. ever, ever. You've heard actors about not coming out of their trailer or doing reshoots on a Coppola movie or... And Spielberg, even on a rare occasion, saying, we'll never work with that actor again. Right. <laughs> I played to their ego, but I will not work with them again, um, even though I gave them one of the best performances of their career. Um, and yet with this one, I don't know what it was. I guess he's just very slow at how he does things because he's been doing it since the 70s, and that just wasn't playing in today's, you know, by the 90s. Everyone was learning how to shoot fast, quick, and get awesome shit. And 
you weren't on it. You weren't on it. It's kind of like how Avid was the first real big digital editing or editing equipment, but no one uses Avid anymore. Right. So, but it was considered professional because it was first. So it's like, mm, well. <laughs> well, I go with they're professional, but a lot of freelance editors use. So you wouldn't know it or consider it awful if you didn't know it otherwise. So it's like, what is professional? I know with De Palma, lots of um, his big set pieces that he always has apparently take a huge amount of time just to set up. And like you were saying, now lots of younger filmmakers know how to basically do the same type of thing. But especially with digital editing and digital filmmaking, um, they can get a better product much faster. So that's probably a big part of it. Yeah, I don't know if that's... Um, pretty much the only guy who gets away with now is Tarantino or Christopher Nolan. <laughs> like the only people who... Good call, yeah, yeah. Because Tarantino has the whole pretentious, oh, you know, I don't want to claim that I directed it if I didn't do the second unit stuff. Right. Like, bullshit, that's why it's called second unit. You got to move on and get it done on time, but oh, Weinstein's letting you, you know, do what you want. Um, and then yeah, Christopher Nolan, you hear about doing his second unit stuff. John and I don't think he does action too well. <laughs> no, I, no, I agree with you guys. Yeah, red mystery. Uh, what do you remember about Dark Knight? The hectic car chases or uh, the Joker interrogation scenes? I'm thinking you remember the latter. You know, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like even in Inception, it's like you remember all the spectacles near the end. You don't really remember the chaotic opening, which doesn't make any sense still to me to this day. Um, yeah, so I mean, he pretty much he fades from this because I guess I don't know if he's doing all second unit stuff. I don't think he is because I know the guy. I forget his name. He's now a very successful second unit director and stunt coordinator and even producer to some extent because he speaks the he talks the talk and walks the walk with the producer so to speak he's best known for doing the second unit stuff on broken arrow as well as the bus jump b but i know he did the carriage fall down the oh in in untouchables right yeah Oh, I don't know if he could have hired someone like this or that, or if he's doing it all himself, saying, hold on, i got to make it right, leave me alone, you know. So I don't know what's going on that, because again, we haven't heard any tells from any actors of any kind, you know, the professional kind, the good kind, who have said a single bad thing about him. Yeah, so, no, uh, it, it's pretty amazing, actually, when you point that out, because I have sort of looked into that thinking, oh, you, you know, there must have been something said at some point. But no, everyone everyone Zavos. has liked working with him. Yeah, the closest I got was Leguizamo says in one of his biographies that are hysterical to read, saying that Penelope Ann Miller was just the weirdest <laughs> actress but on Carlita's way. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Not on those sets. So, yeah. Like, that is so such a rarity. 
because usually there is always one shitty story on a Tarantino film or, I don't know, some other movie. And definitely William Friedkin has had his share. I think he's as close as you get to De Palma in terms of people love him, and yet he's had so many. Although I would argue I think his resume is slightly better just because he's had so many movies that weren't going to find an audience to begin with. <laughs> uh, yeah, they they weren't action. they weren't trying to be mainstream the same way. Yeah, like Bug and The Hunted for right. an '80s crowd. <laughs> but yet <laughs> I still want to. I love his movie The Guardian, and yet I want to know why people hate it so much, let alone why he won't talk about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the Palma. Let's get into Mission to Mars. 2000s kind of reignites again what's kind of been starting since the 90s where twin movies start reemerging, you know? <laughs> right. For every Independence Day, you got a Men in Black or a Starship Troopers. For every uh, Save the President movie, for every, again, just asteroid movie, you got to have some similar movie. And with that one, it was just weird because it's like, yeah, no one was expecting Red Planet to be any better than any typical. 40s RKO picture. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't. The thing about Mission to Mars is I don't. I mean, I probably should research this. I don't understand how Brian De Palma got involved with it whatsoever. It's just. I don't know if he just he couldn't turn down any gig at this point because he was fearing. That might be it. Uh, Graham Yost as the last castle in Speed and Justified and Band of Brothers fame. That's a right. mm -hmm. uh, contributed to that. I gotta say, I guess you could say Stupid Dialogue could have worked with, I guess, a better filmmaker and just better pacing. It's just much like Red Planet, it just reminded you of just the lesser B pictures you grew up watching, but without any of the nostalgia or groundbreaking, you know, Forbidden Planet kind right. of intrigue. Kind of more like this island earth you either really hate it or you remember seeing it in the theater and still got a place in your heart for it but yeah i just i just remember just watching it and kind of like some of those other movies that i consider overrated from the 90s and 2000s that were sci-fi thrillers i just started losing interest <laughs> and it had a hell of a cast it had don Cheadle, even kim delaney taking a break Gar and blue. It had, yeah, gary sneeze yeah gary sneeze I do say Graham Yost, and no one talks about this, I do get a feel that you got a lot of the same tension as Mission Impossible and Speed. People just trying to get out of the doors and everything. Yep. Yeah. But, yeah, once Tim Robbins dies, the movie literally loses the soul of it for me, because he's kind of the main leader, and there's no real precise leader of the expedition besides Sinise. And I don't know, I just, I didn't care if they got home or not. There just wasn't enough depth. Yeah, I have to say, when I last I guess I've seen it maybe twice. And uh, at least the second time I was really aware of, um, I don't know, the last half hour, maybe last hour. I, Like you said, I just sort of didn't care. It was just pretty boring watch, really, because I wasn't invested at all. So I don't know if he got bored. That's not what exactly. Just incredibly boring and dull. Just <laughs> unfortunate. All you remember is the life being created on the planet, the last internet yes. I got. That's really the only reason I checked it out to begin with. I saw that as a special effects thing. And I know something was mm -hmm. wrong with my uncle, who was a big sci-fi guy. Two of them, in fact, on both sides of the family. Left. Right. <laughs> really? Going, and then we're at a party, and I have it on, and they just go into this 
next room and start drinking wine and listening to music. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't uh, anything else. Anything else. Like The Matrix or Star Trek or some other kind of thing. You know, it's like they, good or bad, they would stay tuned, you know. Right. Have fun with it, you know. But and they were just bored. Yeah, any other virtual reality kind of movie that's just being shown on TBS or USA Network at that time. It was like, that one is like, nope, <laughs> on the next one. And even my mother left the room at one point just to make dinner. <laughs> she didn't ask like, you to pause it or anything. And then yeah. she asked what's going on. I'm like, I don't know. I'm a kid. I'm not paying <laughs> I thought the parent was supposed to tell me what's going on. I'm 11 or 12 years old at this point. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't know what's fucking going on. All I knew is that this was a family-friendly movie and... It's not even really family friendly enough. I mean, for God's sakes, it's kind of dark. It <laughs> is. Gets their yeah. Squashed and yeah. That it's not gruesome, so you know, it's the PG rating. Uh, if anything, the Escape to Mars UPN movie knockoff film is way better than this because it's got a bunch of you know Canadian faces you'll recognize from every other kind of movie and show. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Shanks from Stargate SG One. Uh, uh, this other Peter Alterbridge has been in movies like Lucky Number Seven and shows like Designated Survivors on it, and it's like that's a fun, straightforward movie. And this one, it was straightforward, and yet it just didn't take off. It might as well have been Robert, by Robert Zemeckis on an off day making contact. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Uh, yeah, no, I can't defend it. I, I don't think it's the worst movie of all time, but yeah, at that point. I can't blame the Reds for attacking him at that point, but even though those guys are pricks who just hated him from the get-go, I don't believe right. that guy's story, how he walked on the set and said to Paul, well, that guy doesn't know how to make a movie. <laughs> Bullshit, sir. He knows yeah. how to make a movie, just not how you... I mean, you're not a filmmaker, so what do you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, he, he's hated Stallone in it, as we were talking about last episode, Angelina Jolie, all his life, so what does he know? Um, <laughs> I like the Reds when they started out and they were ironic, like First on screen couple, is it going to be Steven Seagal and his guitar fire down below, or is it going to be right. in the boat in Speed 2? <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, yeah. Everything else is like nowadays is like, what? You hate that actor? What was the best part of about that stupid movie? Or it wasn't that bad? Or, yeah, of course, Fifty Shades of Grey is going to win, but. <laughs> well, they, I, I mean, to go on a tangent, the Razzies have sort of just become mean spirited, I think, whereas before they were always done it. Uh, yeah. The whole point of satire, I mean, basically they picked up where the stinkers stopped becoming a thing. It's like, it used to be ironic when Paul Verhoeven was, except for Showgirls or right. Harley Berry would accept Catwoman or Sonya Bullock was up there for doing both a hit movie and a bad movie that same In year. the same year, yeah. Same year. It's like, that was funny. But when you do the whole, oh, they'll never make two movies again, they just want an Oscar. It's like, oh my God, no. It's not how this. And I knew it was damaging because you would hear people repeat that same nonsense. Like, oh, I think Eddie Murphy got denied, you know, an Oscar because he was in that piece of shit in orbit. It's like, God, no, that's not it at all. Yeah. And if it was, you know, that was. What do you care about the Oscars? Those are also about, we talk about lobbying and political stuff. It's like, that's exactly how the Oscars work. It goes to whichever studio makes a high bid and which one wants to combine it with the, you know. People were wondering, why the fuck did Anthony Hopkins win last Oscar season two? You know, Chadwick Boseman was like, 
Yeah, because whoever it was that had the Hopkins bid probably won out. <laughs> yeah, it's all mm-hmm. politics. So. That's all it is. They're all boomers who are very inexperienced with movies and just seem to think, oh, if you do old, slow, boring movies, that's, that's enough. <laughs> whatever. Anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fuck the Oscars. Let's talk about Diploma. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Phoebe Fatal. I actually really like Femme Fatale, so. Yeah, Femme Fatale, yeah. Um, um, it's on it. On who you hear announcing on TV depends on I've seen people say it. But I, I don't know who does the announcing, but I've seen people pronounce it that way when it was like showing on channels like uh, Oxygen or something. I was like, what? <laughs> I always thought it was Femme Fatale, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I wanted to see this from the ground up because I just wanted to see any violent or sexual movie in the yeah. theaters. But no, seriously, I mean, after I got done sneaking in and watching it, HBO and Cinemax channels love this fucking movie. But uh-huh. yeah, with this one, I mean, I legit wanted to uh, just, I don't know, just kind of give it a revisit. And I was, I think I've told people this story before. I was house sitting and I just checked it out. I was like, not going to lie. Might be tied with Irreversible as one of the more ir- underrated, you know, mindfuck kind of movies of the yeah. 2000s. Mm-hmm. But it just did it do any money? Because I didn't hear no. anyone talk about it. Roger, I think I I think it hardly even got a release. I did see it in the theaters in Montreal, and I remember I was the yeah. only one. At the I was and the only one there. So on the home sure. video market, because you would have thought they would have done bullshit like on rated version. Yeah, you know? like no, they didn't even do that. They just had it in like two packs of Antonio Banderas movies. <laughs> yeah, they just flushed it out. I think it did do well in Europe, and that's one reason he started producing more movies in Europe, because of that. There you go. And Roger Ebert loved the hell of it. I think he gave it a full four out of four. That sounds right, yeah. Some movies are just meant to be taken apart regardless of whether they add up, and he just applauded the ending. I'm like, yeah, I mean, the ending really does make it better. You got the yeah. scene yeah. sorry for he uses sex as a weapon, not just and there's a little bit of Sorrow for her as opposed to pity. Ben De- and the scene worked with Banderas. I've talked about him enough on his episode. He was low cast here. Craig Henry, I think, mm-hmm. pops up again, if I'm not mistaken. No, different movie. Okay, with Banderas. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, it was a hell of a cast. Even Pierre Coyote showed up. Pierre Coyote, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Avengers. So it's like, it definitely, I think, was a better made version of what he would have originally done in the 70s and 80s and would have either not dated as well or I don't know it just would have been too much to follow but yeah it's as close as you're going to get to his earlier you know yeah it's it's a it's a throwback to those and like those ones um he wrote the screenplay by himself and he sort of did it slightly under the studio radar I'm not sure how involved they were at all actually yeah it was a Warner Brothers movie so I mean back when they were just producing Stuff with Morgan Creek and franchise pictures and getting, according to some of the filmmakers I've interviewed who work with them, getting fed up with those studios that they were splitting the bill on. You know? uh, that makes sense. Silver not delivering on his promises. So it's like, yeah, any extra money they could make, they were going to work it over. <laughs> right, right. And, they, and if they didn't make it back, they were going to make it back on again. Able channel stuff and getting spoiled on the whole, you know, Sopranos model. Yeah. TV programming too. I'm gonna do that. (laughs) Got Cinemax showing more infamous movies and 
again, skin flex. So yeah, any of these movies that feel like one of those, let's throw it on those channels nonstop. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of where it gets relegated. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely played on Skinamax a lot. Um, and it's way more highbrow than it is made out to be. I I definitely think it's Rebecca Vermeesen's best performance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And as someone we just don't hear you hear about, because we just hear that she's kind of a little difficult to work with. She's now in one of the Star Trek shows. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. With her Jerry O'Connell husband. That's right. Um, Funny. And I mean, I mean, she was awesome in this other stuff, like one of the Austin Powers sequels and X-Men movies. But yeah, I just didn't get talked about as much. Um, yeah, no, I, I love the hell out of this movie. It's just always fast-paced, and I want to de- I still want to kind of take it apart. It's like, which part, you know, it's as close as even De Palma gets to David Lynch. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah, I can close, definitely see that. Uh, two yeah, that's good now. Or an episode of Twin Peaks, or even Lost Highway. Um, I mean, because that's the thing. Lynch and even John Stiles gave up the studio model years ago and just still got shit done because they were indie darlings. But it's like, yeah, the Palma just kind of went out through the radar. It's like last big hit. I guess it made decent rental numbers, but I, I guess he just abandoned Hollywood at that point without actually staying in. Um, well, well, he did one more right afterwards, which was a big um, budget film, which was The Black Dahlia. Yeah, and is a huge. I have it on DVD. I should really rewatch it, but I just remember it being a huge mess. And it was based on another James Elroy novel. He wrote L.A. Confidential, mm-hmm. and sort of going for that short, thing. Long story short, he did yeah. not like this. <laughs> in his difficult nature, um, yeah, but I don't care what Elroy thinks. I care what the Palma thinks. Uh, yeah, it's got one hell of a cast. Oh yeah, yeah, it does. And Josh Hartnett, it was. Hard. This is kind of where, like many actors, kind of like Sandy Newton and Jason Patrick, no one knew how to use them. Yeah. So he just, he just appeared in whatever. And, you know, he'd already done, you know, infamous movies that made money, like, you know, dating comedies in Pearl Harbor. And then he does, you Pearl know, Harbor. That, like Black Hawk Down that make money. But, you know, depending on whether you like really Scott or not, depends on whether you like that one. And, yeah, he did this same year as Lucky Never Slevin. And I, I think that was the better noirish kind of movie, even though it was more of a Tarantino kind of inspired film. No, and, I like, I like yeah, Seven a lot, yeah. Yeah, th- that, he's well cast here, and I loved Hilary Swank and Aaron Ackert, and yet I, I've seen it twice, and I, I cannot get into it. I just... I have the a, same feeling. Just a real same feeling as well. I remember when the trailers came out, I was really excited mm-hmm. because it was finally a big budget De Palma they movie coming back. Right. They said from the director of the Untouchables in right. <laughs> Yep. The author of LA Confidential. Yeah. But it, no, it just didn't. Also, it has, I can't even remember the details because by that point I was sort of completely lost. It has such a weird what the hell ending where everything just becomes camp that sort of throws them yeah. But yeah, I, I know some people on rare occasions will defend it. I'm like, I want to defend De Palma because, again, he's an example of a guy who's got a lot of blunders and yet is so good when he's good. And it's like, and after what he's been through, the last I want to do is be, a, you know, act like I know everything. Is like, no, I don't. I probably would have as difficult a lifestyle if I had all that power and was slowly losing it because yeah, I can't do anything I want now. Gotta play by the rules. Um, 
very well shot. You know? Oh yeah, it's oh, yeah. He's yeah. doing what he's supposed to do, which is show how all these starlets are abused by all him, mm-hmm. his producers, and this private eye who's also learns to be a tough guy reluctantly by being a boxer on the side. And this is kind of where Hillary Swank kind of stopped becoming a big, you know, magnet until recent years. You know, it's like she took time off to help out ailing family members. And it's like, it's just, she was awesome too. And yet, yeah. I forget. Mm-hmm. The, all I remember is that she's the damsel who got killed and you wonder what happened to her. And it's like, yeah, I would have liked to have seen more scenes with her. And the way they, I think Mia Kirshner from 24 yep. and yep, yep. yep. Saying she's on Lost Girls, she was like the only praise the movie got because she did a very realistic LGBTQ character. Right. That's why, not to be insensitive, I have many gay family friends and, again, members of my family, but it's just like, (laughs) I I feel like it doesn't really, I can never feel, I never felt like that was well formatted, just that angle. It just kind of came out of nowhere. No, it's not. It's not. It's not formatted. No, it's not done well at all. You're right. So, and I know De Palma isn't a pig. I don't feel like he ever meant to exploit anyone, but he was just going by the novel, which (laughs) Elroy is all about shocks in his books, and he makes up for it with his characters and grit. So, yeah, it should be pointed out that De Palma didn't write the script either. It was written by Josh Friedman, who has he's apparently co-writing avatar 2 and he wrote terminator <laughs> dark for dark fate sorry and a oh, bunch of yeah, rat- yeah. but yeah, all yeah. his other stuff seems to be sci-fi so it's strange that he ended up writing the black dahlia he was also um the developer of terminator the sarah connor chronicles for tv that's right so. that's where i know him from so yeah <laughs> the show and then he did the use i think well it kind of does make sense i mean there's a lot of sci-fi if you peel it away. It's just the setting. Oh yeah. A lot of yeah. them do often do the Blade Runner's Strange Days, even Babylon Five technique of having someone narrate while something mysterious is happening. So yeah, I'm sure it's if you are watching all the RKO detective pictures, yeah. endless episodes of Dragnet. <laughs> That's a really good point. That's really yeah, I can see that too. Shark Web. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, no. Oh, I he wrote, wrote like he wrote War of the Worlds as well for Tom, um for Spielberg. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, there's another to like it or hate it. Yeah, but right. so yeah. And I would never put this as the worst movie. I can't, I just kind of forget it. Yeah. But, Same. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where De Palma just started just losing interest and in just making deep budget stuff with his foreign investors who loved his movies. Um. And so, yeah, then, then that brings us to Redacted. And I remember Entertainment Weekly giving it a D plus. I saw people defending it on occasion in some movies. Some people love it. It's true. Yeah. Like, how? <laughs> Single Marine. I don't even know who got raped or killed. And Well, just, yeah, that, that's the thing. It's, it's a really unpleasant story, of course. But then it's not really even compellingly told. I think most of the actors are amateur. Yeah. I think most of the cast is amateur or sort of semi-pro. And yeah. he want, because he wanted it to be, I guess, realistic because of found footage. But that just means that they're not very interesting to watch. And yeah. De Palma's had his share of bad actors in some movies, but that's yeah. just it. I mean, that happens with anyone. It's just unavoidable. They market it on 
it was big at that time. Right. And I don't know. So I guess this, uh, I don't really remember anything else he did afterwards. Oh, he, he's, he's done two. He's done passion and he's done domino. So, Oh yeah. 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 I was going to get there, but yeah. In, in between those, I can't remember. Yeah. Passion. I saw twice. Yeah. I, I, I still need to see the French film with the remake of, but yeah, I do too. love crime. Yeah. I kind of felt like he was in the right direction. I just don't have total interest in the storyline, but yeah, both leads, you can't take their eyes off it. They yes. really play the psycho relationship very well. Yeah, I, I like it. It's, um, I think lots of people sort of said it was a return to form for him, and I wouldn't go that far at all. It doesn't quite work or connect for me, but I think it's almost like you say, it's heading in the right direction. Yeah. John, um, have you seen it, or...? No, that's pretty obscure. I don't think it got a film. Uh, I don't think it got a theater release in um, the states at all. So, hmm. yeah. Um, no, I feel about that one though. It's definitely as close as he got post Femi Femme Fatale. Yeah, yeah. Dom wasn't it. Hmm. Domino was like so advertised. Two Game of Thrones stars. Ha ha. From the director of Mission Impossible. Oh. Like he he had it was doomed to fail because like he had. Again, it had gotten delayed because he still just films movies very slowly, and mm. uh, he hated working with the investor. He's like, I will never film a movie in this country again. I forget where it was. It was all, all over Europe, I think. Denmark, um, Spain, and Italy, it says online. There you go. And he's like, I refuse to work with these guys ever again. And you see it, and it's not in... I don't see the validity to saying it wasn't color-corrected. But I definitely had no care put into it. And it was just one of those, like, yeah. Uh. Yeah, he says he didn't um, have any input in the final cut or something. Was that to do with the color correction? or? I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, I think it was more than that. They were just telling him what to do, and he wasn't having it. Well, I know when he was hired to do it, it was because a group of European fans, or they said they were fans, said that they'd pay for this movie for him. And then apparently he would literally, they'd have to hold up filming because they'd have zero money. And then a couple of thousand would come in, so they'd film a little bit, and then they'd wait again. And it was just really, really amaturely done. So, hmm. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't really fault him. Just taking a producer credit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what you should have done. Because, yeah. yeah, you see, it's not offensively bad at first, but then, no. like, yeah, this is like a really generic episode of MI5 or Mission Impossible, where it's like, you know Guy Pierce is bad from the ground up. Oh no, he's the traitor. And, uh. That's a good call. Yeah, it's and very like, much like a TV show. The main actor is well cast, but he's done better stuff. And this one was just one of those, like, there really wasn't anything to his character except what his facial reaction illustrated. And it's like, right. since the movie does not hold him up too well, it's like, yeah, the Palma probably had a little say in it anyway, because I don't get any of his style from this. No, I don't either. Yep. Um, mm. And yeah, I guess that's his last release. So yeah, I I don't think he's gonna do anything anytime soon, and it sucks because I mean, with the right time and money, I think he would be dedicated. So. Well, like, has he been approached by Netflix or anyone? You'd think he would be someone they'd look into, but I think he's done. I think he yeah, so up with he is too. 
I think you guys might be right. By making him money and them money and working with some of Hollywood's biggest names, doing every compromise you can think of. Sure, I'll cast that guy, even though I don't think they're that good an actor. <laughs> right. I don't know. I think it's going to get very interesting. I I know everyone will just cry like babies when he passes away. They'll be like, yeah. oh, I saw that one movie opening day. It was great. <laughs> They become fans too. Yeah. Yeah, they become fans all of a sudden. Oh, we're gonna check this dead filmmaker out. <laughs> like, That's what happened to Joe Schumacher when he died. Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough. Yeah. I felt just sad that whole week, and no one was talking about it. That pissed me off. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna definitely talk Joel Schumacher, and he's another guy who, again, I have friends who just hate him just because they really hate his Batman movies. Right. Right. Yeah, that's another thing we'll get into. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I'm going to let you go ahead and plug what shows you've been on and you want to promote. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nothing for me, really. <laughs> oh, so. oh, okay. John, go ahead. Well, like I said before, my reviews are actually to very random, so we'll see. Never know what I might write. That's what I'll say. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you all for joining us on this episode and apologize in advance to anyone for the sound quality. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. And we'll back anytime, Eric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll talk again. Nice okay. to meet you, John. Absolutely. Nice to meet you, too. Yeah. And okay, bye. Those neo noir lovers, check out what the palm already, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll return after these messages. Hey, feeling down? Feeling low? Not enough podcasts about movies in your life? Why not try... They must be destroyed on sight! The new Podcast Cure-All, sure to get you right with the world and on a path to better living. We have exploitation, we have Italian horror, we have zombies, we have slashers, we have crime films, we have spaghetti westerns, we even have sci-fi and sex comedies. So take a dose of... They must be destroyed on sight! As needed, and let the hosts, Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest host, Cure What Ails Ya. Warning, may cause atrophy, African consumption, black fever, bone shave, chin puff, colic, cramp colic, dropsy of the brain, elephantitis, grocer's itch, jaundice, mania, miasma, mortification, palsy, pox disease, rheumatism, scurvy, St. Anthony's fire, summer complaint, and worm fit in some people. Consult a physician before listening. Hey, I heard you like movies. I heard you like to hustle. I heard you like podcasts. Well, guess what? There's a podcast for you out there called The Home Video Hustle. Damn right. Every Friday, we talk about whatever movie PJ picks out the bag. What does that mean? Every Wednesday on our YouTube page, I put a bunch of movies in a bag, and PJ picks one out at random. And then we just watch it. We talk about it for maybe like an hour, hour and a half, two hours. Whatever we feel like doing, wherever the conversation leads us. But do we actually talk about the movie? Most of the time. Ah. Tangents galore. Yes. So believe me, we may be a movie podcast, but it's not always about movies. We might talk about video games. Mm-hmm. Music. music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the big one, music. Uh, sometimes we might get a little bit of politicalness in there. Yes. 
Sometimes we may just, oh, we know what we like to do. We like to tell stories, PJ. Yeah, yes. I am the master storyteller yes. of the podcast realm. <laughs> Undefeated. So if you like to hear about movies, video games, whatever foolishness comes to our mind, the most random stuff you can think of, check out the Home Video Hustle. You can find us on the Stitchers. Yes. The Google Play. Yes. Apple Podcasts. What else? Podbean. What else? Podcast Addict. Goddamn. All that. Ain't no reason you can't get your hustle on. We everywhere. Worldwide, baby. Hustle, motherfucker. Hustle. Hey, we can't cuss in the promo, PJ. Ah. We gotta be family friendly. There may be podcasts out there that don't want us here to say. Ah. Good fun stuff. Well, <laughs> you. <laughs> no, don't run the listeners away, PJ. Ah, I'm sorry. But this is going kind of long. Yes. So we'll end this and say, hey, check out the Home Video Hustle every Friday on all the various podcast outlets. Peace. Peace. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. And while Witch didn't make it to the top of the world, he did make the Gangs of Hollywood podcast. So join the gang and enjoy a movie review podcast about movie gangs, gangsters, mobsters, and the mayhem they cause. You can find GOH Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GOHpod at www.gohpod.com as well as your favorite podcast listening app. And remember, say hello to your little friend for me. If you take two old punk rockers who are past their prime, put them in front of a movie screen and give them a podcast, what do you get? Cinema punks. Cinepunks. It's the mixtape of movies. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Uh, necrophilia. Uh, uh, uh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked. Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of it. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this, like, little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history doll popping up at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was going to be How did you watch this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hey everybody, I'm Corey. And I'm Zach. 
and we're the hosts of Podcasting After Dark, a cast dedicated to late-night horror and sci-fi of the 80s and 90s, often found on HBO and Cinemax. You know, the movies your parents didn't want you watching as a kid. You can find us every other week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. This is what you want. This is what you get. It's late, it's time, let's check our cue, baby. Pair it with a couple brews, baby. We love good movies. We love the bad ones, too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh, yeah. Everything I learned from movies Helps to make life a little bit groovy With a one last plot holes and It's time to get busy With your friend Stephen At eilfm.podbean.com Hi everybody, it's Mac Jackson I wanted to invite you to a new site called The Forever Adventure Network This website has everything. Pictures, videos, blogs. There's original music by Harmony Constant. Two podcasts. One is the MacGyver podcast, where we celebrate Richard Dean Anderson, his iconic roles, and how it's influenced our lives. There's episode discussions, interviews, and life conversations. The second podcast is the Never Gets Old podcast, where we celebrate all the best things that we love in life, from TV, movies, music, and comics. The site is also the home for the MacGyver SG-1 audio series, an ongoing adventure series that continues the adventures of MacGyver and SG-1. There are also multiple stores to choose from for all of your pop culture, and adventure needs. Come on by and check us out today. And thanks for joining the adventure. We now continue with our program. Follow us on the web on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The podcast is available on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Anchor, Apple, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Feel free to review our show and leave comments on any of those sites. Thanks a million for listening. It's a jacked up.